hello everybody i think that i think now i'm going to intro for 2019 george everything like that just say hello everybody joe rogan does it so i'm going to do it welcome back to the phil Cross survival podcast <laughs> i'm your host mike and george is co-hosting today hello george Hello, everybody. Today's guest is the CEO of Overland Journal Expedition Portal. Everything uh, in the realm of overlanding that I respect and know. Scott, what's up, man? Good morning. How's it going? Good, good. Your levels are perfect, man. I don't know how you get that voice on you. It's you get that voice for radio. (laughs) I definitely don't have a face for TV. So no, no, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Um, So yeah, man. Thanks for coming out. you know, short notice and throwing this together. And thanks for being here. Excited. And we're neighbors. So it's amazing. Well, I can't believe how close you actually are. I mean, how many minute drive are you? Probably five minutes from office to office. It's crazy. The first time I came into uh, Prescott and started seeing, and uh, I think I, I saw you guys black uh, Tacoma. I think it was a newer model, like the yeah. the third gen or fourth gen. And then, uh, it said Overland Journal. I'm like, no way. <laughs> uh, so if you guys if you guys don't uh, follow Scott, uh, I follow him on Instagram. I just actually just posted about him today, which this podcast will be up today. But uh, uh, a big fan of Overland Journal. I always have been. It's the uh, it's actually the one of the few magazines periodicals that I even before uh, I met you and knew you, um, I subscribed to. Like I actually wanted to get the magazine in the uh, in the mail, uh, as opposed to going to Barnes and Noble and then reading them all. Um, and we had a little couple talks about discussions about it. The fact that it's not just a magazine. I mean, it's something that I, I don't throw away. I, I mean, I, I keep all the overland journals I have on the table because it's just a good reference point. So it's a, a really good magazine, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. We wanted it to be a journal. We wanted it to be something that people would keep and that they would consider it archival. So we really go about each issue in that way. How did you, so being the, being the, uh, the owner and CEO of uh, Overland Journal, t- tell, tell people your background because, that, you know, even though you know, we're buddies and I don't even know your entire story, I'd like to hear kind of your story and how you got to the space and got to the point where you're at right now. Well, I, I grew up in Southern California, and when I was getting out of high school, I, I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, let's go into the military. My dad had been in the Air Force. <clears throat> and it sounded like an interesting job. So so I, I joined the Air Force and I ended up being a, a firefighter, which was an amazing, amazing job. I really enjoyed it. And that's when it first, when my had my first opportunity to go internationally. So I went to Italy and actually lived in Italy for almost six months. And it really opened, I mean, that's typical Air Force gig, right? You go to... <laughs> oh, all the good places, Italy, Spain. We go to Fort Bragg in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a really amazing experience. We were there in support of, of the Bosnian Herzegovina, the relief efforts that were happening over there. And it really opened my eyes to the world. And I thought, I, I really want to see more of the world. I don't feel like I just want to explore the United States. I want to explore other parts of the world. And that's what sparked that interest in that. And then, and then it took it took years until I could really start traveling again. I ended up getting a business degree, and then I worked in manufacturing, and then I worked in in software development. And it was my time in software development that gave me the opportunity to begin the process of starting ExpeditionPortal.com, and and really having the the seed money to start Overland Journal. So it was the success of that 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 kicked this all off. And I, I started Expedition Portal in in 2005. And I had done a few international trips before that. 
Um, one of the things that really helped was I did a race in Northern Africa called the Outback Challenge, which is similar to the Dakar or, or uh, some other technical off-road races. Um, it's just a little more technical, so it uses winching and extensive recovery operations and very technical terrain, differential locks, et cetera. And I was invited to go over and race in this race in Northern Africa. Uh, and they just wanted me to kind of be the American, the token American that was going to be in the race to maybe raise the profile a little bit. But we ended up winning it. And when we won the race, it just changed the way that the industry started to, to interact with us. So it was easier for us to get support and sponsorship. What year was that? That was in 2006. In six. Is that, is that what you, you know, for people who don't kind of understand this space, the Overland space, as it's declared, it's one of the fastest growing industries in the United States. I mean, it's a it's a huge, evolving and growing industry. Was that would you, would would you say that that's kind of like the birthplace of when things started kicking up in the mid two thousands? Certainly in North America, I I did not. Um, I mean, globally, overlanding has been popular for quite some time. South mm -hmm. Africa, mm -hmm. Australia, for example. Yep. Um, but when I was when I was deciding that I wanted to move on from software, I really wanted to identify some white space in an industry that where people just weren't doing it, where I had an opportunity to actually help create an industry. And since I had a passion for overland travel, I thought, hey, let's bring this to the United States. And there was lots of people that were already doing it in the U.S. I mean, Gary and Monica Westcott is a great example of some people that were doing extensive overland travel, but they were providing articles to various magazines. They weren't trying to build a business off of the concept. And that's what I thought I would try to do. And Expedition Portal was really the, the start of that. And this was early in the forum age. This was, we were one of the first forums to come up um, in this space. And fortunately, we're still the largest in the overland space. Yeah, I, I, we had a conversation the other day, and I wanted to know about the forum overall experience, because I remember in the, you know, even early, early to mid 2000s, forums was it because you didn't have Instagram online, you didn't have Snapchat and Facebook even uh, at that point was competing with MySpace. So it wasn't a huge uh, deal to have a social media representation. And so forums were where it was at. I mean, if For you sure. wanted to interact, if you wanted to uh, evolve any ways of thinking, it was in a forum. And kind of that's where a lot of people, I guess, learned or did or created their online identity. And so, you know, I still remember the little signature blocks on For the sure. forums where it had your like, you know, DD214 where you could write out all your high speed <laughs> stuff and people immediately respected you based on that validation. But it, it's I'm I'm actually interested in, you know, I used to follow like I used to be a, a, into racing cars and stuff and the forums that I was on, none of them are around today because they didn't survive. And you guys are not only surviving, but thriving in the space. I mean, I look on, I looked at Expedition Portal this morning, and the amount of content and the amount of uh, engagement hasn't dropped off. Or, or what have you seen in the forum space as, it, as it's evolved? I think there's a couple things that are at play here. Primarily, we've seen the shift from 
forms being a social engagement to now being an archive or a, or a technical resource. So I think forums that emphasize being a technical resource will still be fine. Facebook doesn't really lend itself well towards that. Um, so we've seen a drop off in the social engagements like our general forums and our chat forums um, are seeing less traffic, but our, all of our technical resources are actually seeing more traffic. And I think that that's also a, a byproduct of the growing overland industry. If, if um, you took an industry that was mature or declining, then you'd be in trouble if you owned a forum in that space. But the overland industry itself is growing so quickly that even any reduction in the participation in forums is being more than made up with the growth of the industry. I, it, that's fascinating because it, you're, I think you're absolutely right that the, you know, the industry, uh, especially forums, it's kind of like the long form of uh, you know conversation. It like is. you could actually have well thought out conversations with posts, with um, you know pics, with videos, and then something that I've always that I've actually seen in the last couple of years with my own marketing is people are more interested now in identifying those forms or those businesses that kind of have the long form of figuring things out, not just that snapshot clickbait of uh, you know hey a brief discussion. They want to hear the podcast. They want to read the articles. They want the longer form of things. And are you seeing that same trend? Yeah, no question. And that's really been my goal from the beginning. I knew that the overland market would grow, particularly with baby boomers, but it's grown even beyond that to include families, which is exciting. But for me, I wanted to I wanted to make sure that we were always going to be um, focused on an authoritative voice. Um, not that we were the only experts in the space, but we wanted to remain experts. And I think that's one thing that differentiates us is that our team is very experienced. There's a lot of other um, overland resources out there. Uh, the thing that differentiates us from them is our level of experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've always looked at you and, and uh, uh, Overland Journal and Expedition Portal as being like the OG like the founding father of the overland space in North America. Yeah, I remember my first rig was a uh, 1999 Jeep Sahara, and it had lockers in the rear. Um, and we, you know, I was a weekend warrior uh, whenever I had the time to go out and hit the trails. And big in North Carolina because the uh, mountains there, beautiful, beautiful terrain. And but nobody was, uh, nobody was doing overland. What I would consider overland, which is you know, sustaining life and living and traveling, you know, to various places as opposed to off-roading, which off-roading is a huge industry. It and is. so what's, what's kind of your take on, I mean, what, what do you look at when you look at overland as a genre? I mean, can you even define, can you define overland? That's such a great topic of discussion. And it's something that people talk about a lot now. Uh, the, the easiest way for me to do that, the most succinct way for me to describe that is that overland travel is travel. So it's overland is vehicle-based travel. And four-wheeling is recreational sport. And they are both a lot of fun to nice. do. One is not better than the other. Yeah. In fact, um, learning skills and, and maintaining skills through four-wheeling will support your overland travels. Because um, my goal when I'm traveling overland is to be remote. And when you're remote, that means you're going to run into varied terrain. You're going to run into uh, washouts and, and other environmental conditions that require you to have skills and a prepared vehicle to allow you to move through that terrain. But, um, and, and it's, it's interesting because people want to define, um, 
whatever it is that they're doing, whatever their interest is, they want to define it in a way that supports them, that their view on it, right, or, or helps validate their involvement with it. Um, I just think that if the goal is that, hey, I want to go see these Indian ruins in the middle of, of uh, Utah, um, and I'm going to be going for four or five days, I'm going to be camping out. It, I may not be able to find them because I'm going to have to use maps. And that's, that starts to become a lot more like overland travel because it's, it's about a destination that you're going to. Uh, whereas if the goal is to go out for the weekend and uh, we're going to go do Smiley Rock Trail here n- close to Prescott and we're going to engage the diff locks and we're going to be winching and spotting and we're going to be having fun driving our vehicle so it's sport, then it's a lot more about four-wheeling. And, and they're both great, but uh, overlanding is vehicle-based travel. It's the best way to describe that, it. That's, I've never heard of it that way or that, that uh, put that way, and that makes complete sense to me now. And, and I, I remember, I think it was a year ago when we started the whole everyday mobility thing. And, you know, the, the practical way we looked at it, you know, even me and George, I remember, you know, me and George driving in Libya and, you know, we didn't have tricked out rigs, but we had up armored SUVs. What yeah. was the rig that we uh, had? Suburbans. Yeah. Up armored Suburbans. And then we had a, was it the Mercedes? Uh, was it a G-Wagon? I think it was a G up armored G-Wagon. Yeah. We had an up armored G-Wagon and then we had a, um, you know, they, they ran with the Land Cruisers specific in that in that area. Yeah, the it was like the pickup Land Cruisers too. So yeah, they were, the 50K. I think yeah. we bought we bought a couple <laughs> in Libya. But uh, we, you know, we did a lot of traveling uh, back and forth and then uh, a couple of trips outside of Tripoli, uh, Libya. And when we started, when I took that kind of, kind of those things that we did in the military, which involved travel, you know, whether it was Afghanistan or wherever the place, and try to find a niche in the market because, you know, everyday mobility for us was, hey, sustaining life and then looking at the platform that you have, even if it was like a, you know, a, a, a mom and pop minivan for your kids, that you would look at it as an upgrade or an extension to your rucksack or your capability. And so when I look at the overland space, uh, it's that same deal where for sure. you know when you hit the trails you might you might trail your buggy in you might trail your jeep in or, or uh, uh, you know um, put it on the back of a trailer and then bring it in and then hit the trails bring it back and that's your recreational thing which makes sense to me that you identified as like kind of a sport and then as opposed to sustaining life and then you know living outside of your vehicle and what I noticed is people when we went out and said hey we're we're in the overlanding space people got real offensive towards us. And it was a minority. I'm not saying this is like a, a genre thing where they were like, you guys don't overland. That's not overland. And my my take on it was, hey, man, if you have a, a, a minivan and you hit the trails and then you're traveling across the land, you're an overlander because you're utilizing a platform. Yeah, you don't have a high-speed rig that's not in the magazines, but there's something to that where you're ha- having the processes of you know, planning the considerations for living outside of the rig of operating in and out around it, potentially recovering yourself. And, you know, outside of the, the toxic, um, conversations that, uh, were, well, there were one way conversations. We don't entertain that. I just, it was, I, it was funny to me cause I was like, man, this, this space in a, in a way is similar to the tactical space where there's a minority group who thinks their way is the only way, which, which, when I look at the real overland space, how I define it and the people that I've engaged with, it's a community of like-minded people who are into traveling and outdoors and, 
And it's a, it's a great community to be a part of. Yeah, totally. And those kinds of things, they always just come from a place of insecurity. What they're trying to do is, is either keep new people out or they're trying to uh, maintain some purity in their own definition of what those things are. Um, I think the only place that that really comes into mind is like when we talk about expeditions. I think that expeditions require a little bit more definition in order for it to be meaningful, right? But when it comes to overland travel, I think that as long as people are traveling overland by vehicle, um, they can start to include their own definition of that. I think that it allows for a lot more interpretation. Um, I think if someone's going out for the weekend and they're driving from Prescott to Los Angeles, they're probably not overlanding. But if they're, they're just commuting, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think. And I and also like, some people live out of their vehicles, and it's important to to understand that um, that's where people that's the van life is a good example. Yeah, that, where that can start to to uh, parallel into overland travel as well. There's people who've been around the world in two-wheel drive vans. Um, are they overlanding? I would say so, especially some of the places I've seen these people go. Um, so it's really about are you are you getting remote? Are you having an adventure? Is the goal to travel and to experience new things? Uh, that's when overlanding starts to make sense as a definition to me. So I, I, um, you know, I was just reading the most recent um, overland journal and it talks about Fraser Island, Knives, Congo, Morocco. And, you know, you have a, you have a set way for the magazine and everything that's uh, and put into it. What are some kind of like def- defining things that you do for Overland Journal to make it distinct? And, and, you know, is there a kind of like a methodology in the business plan applied to Overland Journal that you could talk about? Uh, for sure. Uh, the thing that I feel most grateful for is the team of people that helped me put this together. They're, they're all very experienced, um, either as editors or as designers or, or as travelers in the field themselves. So we have a quorum of people that we pull together every Tuesday and we talk about the content that we want to have go into the book. And we really do focus on making sure that the vehicles that we feature and the places that we feature and the subject matters that we review um, fit, fit into that journalistic mindset, that fit into that archival mindset. Um, so one of the things that really differentiates us is the, the depth that we go into for our reviews. And that's because it's very time-consuming, it's very expensive, and it requires a certain level of expertise. So that's pretty rare to find in publications anymore because um, making a magazine is expensive. And for a lot of publications, that can mean I can keep a little more profit for myself if I don't spend $30,000 on a review of all-terrain tires or $15,000 on a review of roof tents. So we spent a lot of time focusing on those technical reviews. And then from there, we kind of split the, the content up three ways. We have uh, skills pieces where we try to educate people on how to a uh, specific type of, of overlanding or a specific discipline within overlanding. And then we have aspirational content, which is going to be uh, our like our overland routes or some uh, overland route in the United States or in, in Baja, where people feel like they can do that themselves. And then we have inspirational content, which is like crossing Greenland or Antarctica or driving across seven continents or something like that. Yeah, and I know you, you're you involved a lot in the uh, traveling aspect, and uh, I, I like the story about how you were a firefighter in the Air Force, and that kind of like sparked your interest in travel because a lot of people don't realize that the military outside of the job or role you have is just a job. And when you're done with that job, you have a lot of recreational time. And, and you know, I, I, <laughs> I used to hate seeing like Joes or lower enlisted guys that would spend – you know, a whole duty station in Italy, you know, at the 173rd and never got outside the base and never explored and never traveled because 
the world gives you a a very distinct perspective and it kind of changes your view of your life and how you live it in the United States as well. And I, I'm fascinated by some of the trips that you've uh, done. And I'm looking at this one from Greenland. Um, the one where you guys did the uh, Expeditions 17, um, you guys did the vehicle, uh, first vehicle crossing on the long axis of the Greenland ice sheet, yeah. a 5K journey in special Hilux vehicles, obviously built for Arctic um, in, in, in Iceland. Uh, but Arctic Trucks is the name of the company. Yeah. How was that experience, man? That's it. Just that's got to be. I imagine imprints and in montage in your memories. That's got to be a real distinct memory. It was. And in fact, uh, I still have the effects of frostbite on my left hand from wow. that. A lot of time spent at minus thirty and minus forty. And for me, one of the things that I have found is most important in my life is to have meaningful experiences and to have meaningful relationships. So those are the things that I focus a lot of my personal time on and a lot of my time in my business. And Expedition 7 is a great example of both of those things. So Expedition 7 is a project that I started with a, a good friend of mine, Greg Miller, in 2011. And we had our first trip in 2012. And the goal was to take the same vehicle, which ended up being a 70 series Land Cruiser, taking the same vehicle to all seven continents. Oh, man. And we completed that expedition in 2014. Uh, we were the first team to do that. Um, during that process, we also went to the Antarctic continent where we took that 170 series to make sure that it got to Antarctica, but we also brought along some Hilux that we used to cross the Antarctic continent. So we became the first Americans to cross Antarctica by four-wheel drive. And because we had learned so much in Antarctica, we had gained a lot of experience. So we had a lot of equipment to support other polar travel. So Greg had done some investigation into getting to the North Pole, um, which is need, needs to be done on sea ice. Uh, but the conditions for that um, are very unfavorable now. Uh, the, the conditions in the polar regions are getting warmer during periods of time in the year, and that results in a lot more instability of the sea ice. So we just did not feel like it was going to be safe to do that. So as an alternative, we found that uh, the Greenland ice sheet had never been crossed from south to north or from north to south, so along the, the long axis. It had been crossed one time from west to east by the Arctic Trucks team in 1999. Um, and that's that was um, maybe a couple hundred kilometers or so that they did, um, whereas this was going to be about 5,000 kilometers <sighs> from the south to the north and then back to our exit at Kangalusawak. So we ended up using these heavily modified Hilux on 44 inch tires. One of them was a six by six and two of them were four wheel drives. And we had to pull a trailer and we had to pull sledges full of fuel. Um, so when we talk about being self-prepared, we talk about these go rigs and this mobility, uh, what a great example of that to spend 30 days on an ice sheet. It was 30 days. Yes. Completely <laughs> self-sustained. That's like Ranger. That's a mini Ranger school yeah. right there. How big was your team? Like how much? Like, seven is, people. Seven yeah. people. Wow. Yeah, and, and the team was so critical. As you guys know from your experience in the military, uh, the people that you're with make all the difference. After that, certainly the equipment comes in as a second. Um, and then, uh, you know, planning is also so critical. But the team is really what I believe is our takeaway. Like the things that we remember is about our interactions with the people that we travel with. And I, I traveled uh, with a lot of really good friends. Greg Miller was one of them, Clay Croft from Expedition Overland, Kurt Williams from Cruiser Outfitters. Um, these, are, these are people that are 
very experienced and very skilled as as overland travelers and we needed to be because just getting up onto the ice sheet means you have to climb glaciers and you have to 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 get we had to work with this german company um, that took aerial imagery and did ground penetrating radar to determine where the crevasses were so just us to safely get up onto the ice sheet um, was very very difficult we had to use a landing craft to to bring the trucks around through the ocean and then literally Crash into the crash into the ice to to uh, and then drop the gangplank and drive the vehicles onto the ice. One of the vehicles uh, broke through the ice in a freshwater lake. We nearly lost one of the trucks just at the beginning of the expedition. So, those kinds of experience experiences are defining for us as an organization because they teach us things that most publications simply don't have access to. Um, and that allows us to then, when we recommend people that want to go driving in the snow in Montana, we have a, a, a breadth of experience in in those kinds of conditions that exceed what most people can have. Uh, that that what you just said is, is is spot on with the way that I've always thought that when you train or when you go out and, and express yourself and uh, in, in kind of your hobbies, um, when you kind of look at preparation as being a staple of your life. You, you know, you should always plan and prepare for the worst case scenario. So right. it's cool to see that you guys are doing these stories. I, did, I could never imagine that that trip would be would be a 30 day trip um, in that those extreme conditions. But that you see the farthest limits of you as an individual, you as a team, your equipment, the, the planning process. And you identify all these markers of things that you can give in a narrative and a story to be able to you know educate people at the same time expressing um, you know the journey the adventure that it was yeah um, when you know you guys were obviously driving five a thousand uh, kilometers and thirty days uh, I, I assume there's not a lot of like rolling down the windows hanging out and just like looking out and, and what are some of the challenges that you guys had to face when doing that trip I mean you guys are isolated in individual vehicles. And then when you get outside the vehicle, it's negative, whatever, all the time. Yeah. Th- negative 30, negative 40 up on the ice sheet. Um, the ice sheet is so thick that you're up at eight, nine, ten thousand feet. Um, so it's, it's very cold. Uh, it's amazing though. Um, the interactions that you have, I remember, uh, we came across some, some wolf prints out, on the what? middle of the ice sheet. Yeah, I mean, the wolf probably perished, ultimately. Yeah. But just to, to hop out of the vehicles and randomly come across, you could see the wolf was dragging one of its paws, so it was clearly fatiguing oh, from the conditions. But, like, I had this very powerful connection to that, to this, to, to that moment because it's this awareness of, of, like, as humans, we wouldn't last minutes. I oh, mean, yeah. And this wolf had lasted a lot longer than that. It had made it 100 kilometers in from the coast. But um, it's just how fragile we are. I mean, I remember um, when, I was, when I was up in the North um, Arctic in Canada, I had, I had frost-nipped the avioli of my lungs at minus 57. And like even with balaclavas and all that, we're just so ill-suited to those extremes, um, even with the best of equipment. But that just, it just, it tests us. And that's what I like about it. And it tested everybody that I was there with. And in 30 days, we never had a single crossword spoken between any member of the team. Um, And it doesn't mean that that couldn't have happened or that we were immune from it or we were 
so experienced that that wasn't possible. But that was the mindset of our group was that we wanted to complete this expedition as a team. And we didn't want to doesn't mean we didn't have discussions or tense moments, uh, particularly when we were in some whiteouts and um, we were getting into the crevasse zone and it was getting more and more dangerous and we were getting lower on fuel and we were running out of time. And when those things start to all confluence together, that's when you really test yourself. That's amazing. And what a humbling experience, right? I mean, just to, to like you say, you know, to test the extremes of everything, the equipment, your own individual skill sets and as a team, and that you come back from that with a, a great appreciation for life and for what you have and everything else. People, you know, going into night team when we're talking about mindset, I was talking about it on the Modern Mindset podcast yesterday. I mean, just just if people go into things uh, with a more empathetic mindset and understand that the world and, and how we live um, isn't defined by our freedom in, in America, isn't defined by our routines in America, that there's a, a bigger struggle going on throughout the world uh, that we would change our perspective and have more empathy for, for humanity as a whole. And it, it's just amazing because I think about like, you know, Ranger School, which is just a school, it's just training, but how much it's humbled me uh, in my military career because you literally see the extreme case of everything, of how people act when they're broken down, when they don't have anything, and how equipment can fail and you still have the resolve of the, the team. I, it's an amazing, amazing magazine, and, and I just recommend everybody, if you haven't picked up an Overland Journal, go and pick one up because uh, what I also love about not only the stories, it, it reminds me of like the National Geographic when I was a, uh, a young uh, child. Uh, because it, it has the photography to go with um, the stories, and it, it has a perfect representation of both. And you, you're a you're a you know a photographer yourself, and you're you're very passionate about that. What's the tie-in with photography? Is there like a is there like a staple or a standard for you that hey, photography is a huge element. When, when looking at a, a visual representation of it? It, it is, and it, I think it's the only way to really um, show people what you've experienced on these trips. Um, I think one of the things that a lot of writers do is that they make the mistake of trying to tell somebody what they experienced instead of showing them. So describe what, instead of saying this is a beautiful sunset, describe what the sunset looked like so yeah. that the reader can actually get a sense for that. Um, one of the best ways for us to do that visually in the magazine is through the photography. And it just happens to be a personal passion of mine. I mean, it's literally my art. It's as close to art as I get. And um, it's something that I love doing. It's I'm passionate about it. Yeah, it's awesome. And I, I love the mag and I love everything that it stands for. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, Expedition Portal. Because, I mean, Expedition Portal... When I every time I go on it and have a business mind perspective of of uh, of things, I I see things and how much work goes into it. And we were talking about I even registered um, on Expedition Portal, and it was like a manual registration where they had to manually go in there. And we we discussed that a little bit. That's that's one of the standards that you have. How has it been? Um, you know, through the evolution of starting in the mid two thousands and then developing Expedition Portal. How has it been? And then uh, what are some of the staples similar to Overland Journal that you stick with with a portal form? I think for Expedition Portal, for me, it was the thing that made the most sense to start with. It's the easiest thing to do. Is to, it's the lowest amount of investment as opposed to printing a magazine was to start a website. And forums at that point in time, they were the place for people to go for both for social engagement within a community of people, like-minded people, but also as a technical resource. Um, but as we saw... 
things developed, we wanted to get more into editorial online as well. So that's when we started essentially the blog side of the site. So we have close to 4,000 articles now available. It's the largest overall archive of Overland content in the world. And because it does appeal to people globally, we have members and readers uh, from all over the world. And that's allowed us to to be essentially the largest readership in the Overland space in the world. We'll reach close to a million people a month. Yeah, that's insane. That's that's crazy. I mean, that's awe-inspiring, too, when you look at the, the, the archive of the total amount of content that you can get and digest. Um, it, you know, when I, when I, I was talk, talking to Scott and talking about a, a story when I started a forum a few years ago and it just got inundated with spam and scammers and, you know, viruses and everything else. And, I, you know, Expedition Portal was like one of the best resources, it, but it's so clean because there's no, there's no drama. It's moderated properly. Everything is just organized really well. Um, what, what is the future for Overland Journal and uh, Expedition Portal in 2019? Do you have a, a distinct plan for evolving uh, what's already a great product? I think it's going to be more of the same. The The goal for me is I think we'll start to do maybe some editorial video. You'll start to see that from us. But the, the focus for us is the industry is growing. So we want to just provide more resources and more content. So we're actually hiring some additional editors. So you're going to see even more content going up on Expedition Portal. And you'll see some additional pages in Overland Journal likely by the end of the year. So we just want to focus on continuing to service the industry and grow with it as it does grow. Where do you see the industry going? I, I'm fascinated with the evolution of what, I mean, I've seen kind of like this, I don't know if it's like a rubber band, it's eventually going to uh, snap, um, but there's a whole bunch of obviously companies popping up and developing products and services and a whole bunch of things. Do, what, how do you see the, the genre evolving? Yeah, it, it'll it'll go through the natural life cycle of of most new recreational industries. I think that you'll end up seeing overlanding being similar in size and scope and global reach to fly fishing. I think that's a great example or a parallel. Interesting. So yeah. it'll be it'll be a good sized community. We we will continue to see rapid growth because it has become much more popular. Uh, a great example of that is Tapui Roof Tents was recently purchased by Tule Racks. Oh wow! So REI is selling roof tents now, which means that overlanding is, is now part of the common vernacular within the outdoor space. Uh, we work very closely with the Outdoor Retailer Show in Denver, and we have vehicles on display there so that people that are outdoor recreationists can start to understand how, you know what, a forerunner with a roof tent or a, a Jeep Wrangler with a roof tent or a, a trailer behind it, that can really help enable the kinds of adventures that I want to go on. So that that vehicle can be a support to what they love to do already, but then it can also be a new interest of theirs that, where they think, oh, I not only want to go rock climbing, but I'm going to go a couple hours back in and I'm going to go check out this amazing Anasazi ruin, right? Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting how the, the crossover market, I mean, if you go to SEMA, now it's just like an overland show. I mean, that all it the is. vehicle and rigs that are legitimately um, on the floor space are typically off-road type vehicles that are built out that way. Same with Shot Show now. I mean, Shot Show, they're they're you know the last couple of years they've been re or they've been introducing like motorcycles built out. Now you see vehicles kitted out yep. because it's all synonymous because you have to get where you're going in order to uh, serve the adventure. So. It's interesting to see the evolution and the growth of it. Um, what are some things that you don't like about the industry? Because I know 
you know, we discussed offline some things that are just, you know, we've ran into over, over the past. Um, what are some things that you don't like the direction it's going in? Well, I, I would say the only thing that really comes to mind is it's important for for people to do their research on the, the companies and the individuals that they're interacting with. So um, someone may have a, an amazing website and they may th- sell roof tents and things like that. Do some research onto the quality of the product. Uh, the reality is uh, if you're out recreational four-wheel driving for the day and a piece of equipment fails, it's usually not the end of the world. It's usually expensive. Maybe the toe is expensive or things like that. But if you're out in the middle of the desert in Baja, California, and you have a piece of equipment fail, it starts to become a lot more a lot more hazardous to your own health. So I think that maintaining that level of quality and for people in the overland space to continue to expect that level of quality is critical. So we're seeing more and more knockoff equipment. We're seeing more and more equipment that isn't properly tested or isn't suitable to this kind of travel. Um, and that that often results in this storyline of you've got to add more and more stuff to your vehicle, and then these vehicles get overloaded. Every single one of these trucks has a payload, and we need to stay within that payload for a lot of reasons, both legal reasons. Imagine if you ran into a school bus full of kids and your vehicle's 1,000 pounds overloaded, the insurance company could deny your claim. Yeah. Um, So that's just something to be aware of. And then um, once these vehicles start to get overloaded, then they don't stop properly. They can't take an emergency lane change and imagine trying to avoid a, an elk coming out onto the onto the roadway and the next thing you know you're on your lid because the vehicle is too heavy um, or the load is too high in the vehicle. So I, that's one of the things that I see that's a concern. And then also where you're getting your information from. So I think just people just doing a little bit of research on the background of the people that are producing the content or the people that are producing the YouTube videos or the editorial online, um, where have they traveled? What is their experience? Um, who do they work with that results in them having the authority to speak on that subject? Um, there are some amazing folks in this industry with a lot of experience. Focus on those. The Overland Expo is a great resource as an event to go to. Um, there are people that do training there that are very experienced. Look at the list of trainers that Overland Expo has and use that as a starting point. Um, and then just do a little bit of vetting. Go to the About page and figure out where has this person been. I mean, if the most that they've done is cross the Mojave Road, then you may want to stop there. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, you know, what I've, I've actually seen in the uh, industry. And, and, you know, it's, it's a problem in every industry where you have what people say are experts. They call them, so if you call yourself an expert, that doesn't mean you're an expert. And that there has to be a vetting process because a, a lot of people come out in that space. And like you said, it's a dangerous practice when somebody's becoming an expert and just because they have popularity, which doesn't equate to uh, expertise in anything, they come out and then they influence a whole bunch of people to do the wrong thing. And, you know, I, I just, that's very important. And that's why I trust your portals and your magazine as a reference source reference uh, or speed dial on you to be able to cross reference information, to be able to validate uh, people who are, you know, vetted in this space because, you know, this is it's it's like firearms. You know, where you could you could easily go down a road that's irresponsible, and then you know the the only thing that means is it can get you in a situation where you hurt yourself or you hurt other people. For sure. And it's it's because it's not. I mean, yeah, you could overland on dirt roads and probably not have a difficult time. But the people that are out there that I've seen, kind of like, and they're just pushing limits, and you're like, nah, that's a bad practice because 
now you're just putting people's lives in danger because they're going to follow follow lead. And the, these stories are not rare. We know stories around the world of people who've been overlanding that have ended up in in life threatening situations, and many of them have died. Um, you, you you don't go into some of these third world countries and think that it's going to be like Disneyland. It's not. You've got to have some some basic understanding on how to interact with those cultures in a safe way, and. And also not overloading your vehicle. And I mean, recently there was a, a Jeep that burned to the ground because of the the material that had gotten onto the skid plate and probably gotten start a fire started from the catalytic converter or something. But it's just the more that we grow the industry, the more likelihood that there are that people are going to get injured. Um, and it's just about not pushing your limits, gaining experience, making sure that you're using the right quality equipment um, and not overloading your vehicle. That's the, usually the quickest way to determine if somebody knows what they're talking about. Look at how overloaded their car is. Yeah, it's, you know, we had the conversation. I, I think it's a good segue. And we, you know, we talked about this Go Rig challenge. And I consulted with Scott on the Go Rig uh, challenge in the first place. But one of the things that I wanted to do, and this is taking place real, real soon in the next few weeks, is I'm taking a rig, one of our rigs, which uh, I haven't even told Scott this, but it's going to change. One of our rigs loaded out and determine if we could make a trip from Prescott, which is right, you know, obviously where headquarters is at, but under the scenario or under the circumstance where we have to escape slash evade and get out of the area and hit the Canadian border. Obviously, I'm not hitting the Mexico border um, in a in a real world catastrophe. So going north and seeing if I can make it self-sustained. So no external help, no external uh, resources, no gas stations, um, no, you obviously refueling or refitting and then see if I have how much capacity I could take and how I could, um, make that trip and all the things that we could kind of identify and just a short trip. It's only a few day trip, but all the things that we could identify as ways to improve your overall rig. And when I ran that across Scott, the first thing that came up was low capacity. And, and I, it's interesting because you know, I've th- always thought about it, and I've always wondered why we, we've done it. And if you go to SEMA, if you go, it's not that way in, at Overland uh, Expo, but if you go to SEMA and these big events, bigger is better in the in this space, right? Because people want the aesthetic. They want everything to look cool. They want the road armor, um, and, and they want to build it out, and which means beefing it up. And, you know, from our experiences overseas, and I was talking to Scott about uh, your experiences in Africa and, and all over the place, um, you know, less is more there because they look at efficiency and optimization. And so, you know, I, I told a story where it's on YouTube. We got a video on it, but we ran into a German couple that has a, uh, a Defender 110. I think it was an O2 TD5. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a reliable and um, had had a bigger horsepower, just a better engine to be able to go overlanding, and they were doing all of North America. And what I noticed about everything on that vehicle was it was aluminum. It was lightweight because they didn't want to overload their vehicles. And when I look at my vehicle and the companies that we work with, as individual companies, they're great. Like Truck Vault, great company. And as a standalone drawer system, great. It's a couple hundred pounds. It's a lot of weight in the rear end. But when you start stacking on the CBI rear bumper, the rooftop tent, all the stuff that you have to carry, the dogs, the everything, you start getting in this situation, which uh, you just highlighted, where you get overloaded. And I even notice it now with the vehicle loaded, where I'm driving on ice, 
And I had the experience in Utah where the rear end, because it's so weighted down, starts to drift on me under any kind of transition of power. And I think I I said it yesterday on a podcast where I was like, you know, I think the the genre in ways are headed in the wrong direction because that's the Americans' take on it. We want to build shit up. We want to yeah. we want to build this uh, mega rig to look cool. And then I realize a lot of the stuff we do are for aesthetics. It's for that picture, but it, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for part of this trip, I've actually decided to uh, use my Dodge 2500, the 08 diesel, which is a 6.7 liter diesel. It's uh, has a yeah, mega great idea. mega crap ton uh, load capacity, has a, a 10,000 plus pound towing capacity, and gets 22 miles per gallon. I got an EFI live, it's chipped, I'm on stage four and I get 22 miles per gallon on the highway, plus it's cruder with the diesel. And I could carry a high amount of weight and not be compromised as far as the trails that I'm going on. Is, I mean, what's your opinion on kind of like top loading and doing all these things from your experiences overseas and seeing what the Australians, what the Africans, what the you know Europeans are doing versus what we're kind of doing and getting into as individual businesses. I think there's a couple things at play. One of the things that keeps people of the right mindset in Australia and in Europe is is in Australia in particular, they actually have federal regu- regulations on the load of the vehicle. So a, a police officer can actually pull you over and see if you're overloaded. They can actually have uh, impromptu uh, weigh scales where they'll check your your uh, vehicle weight. And if you're over payload, the vehicle's put to the side until you can get that load out of there. Um, and then many European countries are the same way. So these, so a lot of people are, are mindful of the payload because they're actually being regulated in that way. But it also has a practical implication as well. Um, I, I expect the vehicle to perform in a certain way. So vehicle dynamics is important to me. So I want the vehicle to be able to handle properly if I'm on a backcountry road and here's a washout that comes up and I've got to act and the vehicle starts to drift because of the transition of of, of shifting from off of the gas and onto the brakes, that the vehicle actually just doesn't start rolling down the road. Um, so I, I'm really interested in vehicle dynamics, proper stopping distances, acceleration, fuel economy. All of those are part of it, and I think it's part of being uh, preparing the vehicle properly. Um, but then there's also, to your point, that that people want the vehicle to look a certain way, but maybe, maybe change the mindset of, in, instead of how my vehicle looks, how about where the vehicle is? Take a picture someplace amazing. Go someplace interesting. And that's going to be a great photo. Um, it doesn't have to be, I think a lot of people get this idea of like, I'm going to be on a dirt parking lot, but I've got all this cool stuff on my truck and that's what's going to make the photo interesting. Actually make the photo interesting. Go to the Grand Canyon, go to Southern Utah, go to go to Death Valley and take and have a more stock rig with less modifications, but in a really beautiful place. Yeah, stop making sense, Scott. That makes too much sense. Stop <laughs> making sense. Yeah. I, I'm looking right now at the payload capacity, uh, and you know, depending on what resource you're using, uh, it's anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds on a Tacoma, a stock yep. Tacoma, and it's four thousand pounds on a Dodge Twenty Five Hundred that's right. that you can carry. And you know that dot that two thousand eight Dodge. I have a pure performance. It's like a Baja chase truck lift. Uh, which is uh, absolutely capable. It's off-road capable, and I've seen you know when when trucks have heavier loads in the rear end, they perform better. So you don't get that wheel hop that you see on the back end. So you know the traction's applied directly to the surface, and it just it just drives better. 
and uh, especially in off-road conditions. So it's it's absolutely capable. And what you just mentioned is what we were talking about is fuel capacity. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're looking at, you know, the go rig application or the go rig coined term is it's not about um, it's it's about your capability, but it's also about the extension or sustainment of your capability. And what a lot of people don't realize in sustainment and survival, you know, just take one minor scenario. It could be a natural disaster where it knocks out electricity, it knocks out the grid, it, it backs up traffic because of the weather. Um, you only have the resources on that vehicle that you have. So if you just have one, you know, half of a tank of fuel and you don't have a reserve of fuel anywhere else and you can't get to a gas station, that's all you have. And so when I when I do plan trips like this, I'm not I'm not under the illusion that people are going to go out and buy 100 gallon tank reserves on their on their pickup truck. But like you said, you take the rig that you have and you kind of extend the capability and understand the capability through education, and then kind of set yourself up for success. Uh, we were interestingly we were uh, talking about. Uh, uh, trips in Africa, and I had mentioned uh, in Afghanistan where you know you could drive around in your high speed rig, and you come across a Toyota Corolla that's yeah. driving up the same terrain that's uh, abusing your rig, and that's just how it's done because uh, people are making with uh, making do with what they have. That's right. Uh, what What are some kind of definitive experiences that you had overseas? You know, tied into your overland experiences that are kind of definitive. I mean, I know we talked about some culture considerations, the Kenya thing where you're crossing into the Uganda border. What are some things that you've taken away from overseas travel as it relates to overlanding in America? I, I think the best thing that happened to my overland travels when it came to minimalism was starting to ride motorcycles. So once, awesome. I, started, once I started riding adventure motorcycles, I realized how little I actually needed to go around the world. And if you think about everything that would be on my adventure bike would fit in the passenger seat of your Tacoma. So it's it's that minimalist. Now, of course, the vehicle is much smaller and, and, and it, it just has the opportunity for less stuff on it. Uh, but that's a good place to start is travel by bicycle or think about the people who've ridden a bicycle around the world. And they've done it on everything that they've had to propel themselves. So these are very lightweight loads. So if you start with that mindset, then I think you're off to a, a great start because then you're not going to be adding too much to the vehicle. I did a trip from Barcelona, Spain to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia through Central Asia, through the stands, Tajikistan, the Wakhan Corridor, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, all those places. And I did it in a, a bone stock Suzuki Jimny. I put some slightly better tires on it. Um, and I had a couple backpacks and bought a toolkit from the equivalent of Home Depot in France. And I had, I think I had two 20-liter uh, jerry cans, and that was it. Um, so it reminded, it, it gave me the opportunity to explore ultralight travel. And I found that I actually had a better experience with that vehicle than I did with the ones that were heavily modified. And the reason for that is everything that we add to the vehicle is a distraction. Every piece of electronics, all of the iPads and, and GPS units and sat phones and, and all the gadgets and 
and apps that we need to turn on and Bluetooth to something else, all of those things distract us from the experience. So the more pure of a form of travel we can get to, the more we'll enjoy the actual travel itself. Now, that isn't to dismiss the fact that people love gadgets, and I'm not trying to take away from that. It's just it's just having that balance. For me, it's about the experience. For someone else, it may be about the gadgets. They may love the fact that they've got all this stuff interfaced to their car. But from my experience, it's the more minimalist I travel, the more I enjoy the experience itself. And if you look at a Jeep Wrangler, for example, it has a thousand pound payload. If you take you and me, Mike, and we put, put ourselves in that Jeep, we've used up half of the payload. You put a front bumper on it with a winch, you've got a couple hundred pounds left. So it's really easy to, you know, you add a roof tent and you add a roof rack and you add a rear bumper and you add a drawer system and you add a fridge. You are so overloaded that the vehicle begins to perform poorly. So that amazing Rubicon that you started off with that could go anywhere starts to not go everywhere. Starts to get stuck a lot more often. Yeah, it starts to degrade. Like you said, it, it starts to detract and degrade from the overall experience. It when, does. when I, you know, we got buddies that have stock Monteros and you can get one for 1500 bucks if you find one. And they're enjoying the experience. And I think, you know, what you just said, I, I just wrote it down because I hope you didn't trademark it, but it's ultra, ultra light travel. Yeah. Um, did you trademark that? No. Okay, sweet. I'm trademarking <laughs> it. No, I, I, I it's because we've always, like when you're, when you're at war and you're traveling in a Land Rover that's chopped, you have to optimize every single ounce that's on that vehicle because every ounce matters in a life or death situation. So it's not like you're bringing luxuries. You're bringing things that actually matter. And I think you're right. We get into this, uh, and it's a form of complacency where we, we depend on gadgets and tools to make us feel better about the overall experience as kind of like a sense of security, as a security blanket. And so when you have that 10,000 pound winch, it feels good because you're protected by a, a 2,000 pound bumper, you yeah. know? And then we start to, it starts to detract because, you know, from my experience, you know, overlanding more and traveling more in North America, the more shit I have on my vehicle, the more I have to think about more shit. And yeah. it takes away from capturing moments or living through moments. And it's just interesting, man. That's an interesting topic, and it's an interesting way to look at the genre. And it's almost like, it's almost like every industry, you know, the tactical industry, where we, you know, you made the analogy where it's like you just put more stuff because you got a Picatinny rail, you got a quad rail now, so now you have four different rail systems that you could put on more accessories. And the next thing you know, you have a, you know, a, a fifty-pound gun. And being at war, I didn't run a suppressor on the front end of my gun, not because I didn't want to be suppressed, because I didn't want the weight, because you're you're lugging that thing around for 24 hours on an op, and you're like, I need to streamline my setup. Um, you have a G-Wagon, and tell us a little bit about your G-Wagon, because we talked about uh, you know, electronics and some of the things that are uh, on it and its capability. What are some things that you've done with that G-Wagon, and, and what's your, your, your thought mindset on that? I think it's a good platform to start with. It's it's a little bit unique, which is probably why I like it. Um, it also has a proper payload, so it has a sixteen hundred pound plus payload. So it and it's very minimally modified. I put a small lift, fifty millimeter lift on it, and it fits almost a thirty five inch tall tire. I am a believer in larger diameter tires. There's a lot of reasons for that, more than we could go into in for a podcast. But um, there is there are reasons to run large diameter tires, um, particularly in in technical terrain. Um, so you I mean do, in width and in, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> sidewall, both mostly in, in sidewall height. 
So okay. we want the overall tire diameter to be tall. Um, the width is less important. Um, the vast majority of our flotation, 80% of our flotation comes from the length of the carcass as we air down, as opposed to the width. So a wide tire has its place in certain circumstances. Like when we crossed Greenland, we were literally driving on flats on snow. Yeah. Yeah. So we were at three PSI and these are 44 inch tires. <laughs> three PSI. Yeah. They're 44 inch tires. That's and they're air down. <laughs> yeah. And they're 18 inches wide. Wow. So, and they, we need as much flotation as possible. So things, things can be highly specialized, right? Um, we know that even in the firearms industry, there's highly specialized firearms for specific ap applications. Um, but in my mind, I like to have a tall tire, relatively narrow, um, so that it fits up in the stock wheel wells mm -hmm. and it doesn't stick out from the fender flares. So those yeah. are the considerations that I have with re regards to width. Um, but then I have a, a 461 military G-Wagon a metal front bumper, and then I have a removable winch. And sometimes I run a roof rack. Most of the time I don't. Um, I have a very lightweight organization system in the back, and that's it. I really don't have much that's modified to the vehicle because they come from the factory suitable for this kind of travel. It has multiple differential locks, front, center, and rear. It has a high load capacity. It's got good ground clearance from the factory, um, really durable drivetrain, like one ton drivetrain underneath it. So these vehicles are designed from the factory to support this kind of travel. And I think that that's really where the mindset starts is once you start to see the forerunner that's 2000 pounds overloaded, they just bought the wrong car. Like go move, move up to a, an excursion that has the payload capacity. So start with a vehicle that best supports the kind of travel that you wanna do and the kind of gear you wanna bring along with you. And then when you do start to modify the vehicle, only add the things that are absolutely necessary. Um, I have this, this mindset of like, the vehicle isn't perfect until you, it, when you've added the last thing to it, the vehicle is perfect when you've taken the last thing away. Mm. When you've actually found out exactly what you need the vehicle to do and it's so perfectly suited to your form of travel. I love that. What What is your... What's your favorite off-road overland vehicle? If you had a, if you had a, for somebody who wanted to get into the space and somebody that wanted to start off, you know, obviously on a reasonable budget and that wanted to get something that's just capable for everyday use and everyday travel, what's something that's pretty competent in the space that you've seen that's a, a staple? In North America or globally? North America. Uh, in North America, you're always better off starting with a Land Cruiser. Um, just find a Land Cruiser like that you can. FJ80. 80 series Land George, Cruiser. I got one. <laughs> 100, 100 series Land Cruiser, 200 series Land Cruiser. Um, you're, there's a reason why they're as popular around the world as they are. It's because they are specifically designed for what we do. Yeah. Um, so starting with a J series Land Cruiser, this is going to be a heavy duty Land Cruiser platform. A 60 series is also a good example. But these are all going to have. Big payloads, um, the, the 200 series is a seven passenger, the 100 series is a seven passenger, the 80 series is a seven passenger. So if you think about that, it has to take seven people worth of payload. So if you only got two in there, then you've got a lot more, a lot more payload for equipment. Um, so low center of gravity as well, I've noticed about most Grant Land Cruisers. Pretty, they're pretty good as far as that goes. Um, you know, don't think that the Land Cruiser is the most capable vehicle. It's not. A Jeep Rubicon will run circles around an 80 series off-road in stock stock comparison form. Um, the reason why you buy a Land Cruiser is for ultimate durability, reliability, and payload capacity. Um, capability, it doesn't mean that they suck. It just means that they're not the most capable vehicles. They're capable for what they're designed to do. Um, they're usually underpowered as well, so they need to be geared properly. Um, you need to watch... Um, 
how hard you drive them on the highway so they don't overheat. But uh, Land Cruisers do have limitations. They're not bulletproof um, in any way, but they are the best place to start. Wait, for George's rig, uh, we, you guys were talking about it before the podcast. What, what's the first on a stock mod and, and um, you know, he's looking to invest money into it just to, just to make it a little bit better. And outside of obviously the efficiency stuff like spacers and, uh, or uh, space savers and, you know, goat bags and stuff like that, or tires, what, what's a good mod to modify an FJ or a Land Cruiser? Well, an 80 series Land Cruiser is one of the high marks of overland vehicles. Um, they're hard to find with low miles now, uh, but it sounds like you've got one with 170,000. Yeah, it's about 177,000 yeah, miles. Yeah, that's now. great. Um, that vehicle, if it was me, I would start with good tires and a suspension on there. So the suspension can match the load that you plan to carry, it, carry with it, gives you a little more ground clearance, and then go with a slightly larger diameter tire. I told you. I know. I told you. I'm going to get... Did you I, order that yet? No, not yet. What? <laughs> We've been talking about it for like a year. I'm like, bro, old Emu, just get an old Emu kit. And it's like a three point... It's three, uh, three, three inch lift. Yeah. And it comes with, you know, the everything you need, the, the front shock bar, springs, shock springs, the spacers, all that. So I just got to do it. I just, I for, keep forgetting, to be honest with you. Like, I'm like, okay, we, we I got are it. busy. We got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, oh. Outside of the U outside of the US, what what is uh, the best rig that you've experienced that is the go to? You know, it's it's a it's a fun thing to talk about because um, there are the, there are vehicles that check all the boxes that are actually the best thing to recommend, and that would be a seventy series Land Cruiser, right? Um, but when I think about the vehicles that I love traveling in, because I'm an eccentric person. I think about Defenders and I think about G-Wagons. I traveled a lot in Kenya and Uganda with, with uh, 461 military G-Wagons, and uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed those vehicles. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that they were different and that they, they just weren't the same as what everybody else was using. Um, uh, you know, a Land Rover will always look amazing in the middle of Africa, and, it'll all, and they're, they're very space efficient, too. Uh, they have a, a 110 has a ton of interior space, and they have really high payload capacity. Uh, but they're never going to be as reliable as a Land Cruiser. Um, so you really have to pick the thing that suits you best. Um, and I think that if you always, if someone who doesn't care about the vehicle, they just want to have the travel experience, get a Land Cruiser. It's that simple. I, the nostalgia on the Land Rover. I just, you know, I have a Series Three, and it's a '77 right-hand drive from the UK. But having experienced the Hindu Kush and you know, Northern Afghanistan for almost a year in that rig. I just, there's something about it, man. That's just magical. And, you know, I, I'm interested to hear because you, you've had these memories and, and you know, my, I, I want to be as my goal is to be you. And when I'm, when I'm your age and you're not much, uh, you're not much older than I am, but because you are very well traveled and well cultured. So what, what I always tell people when trying to, you know, build your experiences and especially becoming a subject matter expert in anything. It could be mindset, it could be you know finance, whatever it may be. You have to get a world perspective because we're so protected and so complacent. And, and I don't equate that to a bad thing. I think a default of freedom is the characteristic of complacency. And as long as you know how to balance that, uh, it, it's okay. But when you travel overseas and you start realizing that the world around us is completely different and that different cultures operate in different ways. I mean, uh, George, he doesn't talk about it much, but he was the first special operations team into Ukraine. Um, experiencing that culture for an extended period of time, it gives you a new perspective on life. And you have you are, you are well-traveled. What is your favorite country 
And what is your favorite experience from your overseas travel? I, I would say that uh, Southern Africa for me is the place on the planet that connects with me most. Uh, it's you, ha you can have an experience of the big cities in South Africa. You can go into the mountain kingdom of Lesotho. Uh, you can go see Rhino in Botswana, or you can cross the Namib Desert in Namibia out to the Skeleton Coast. Um, the ability to see megafauna, to w be woken up in the middle of the night with a lion roaring, um, that that to me connects with... Chills. That's chills. Yeah, that's awesome, man. It, it, and that it gives you chills. It's amazing because... Like deep down in my genetic core, I know what that sound is. It's unmistakable. Yeah. Um, you know, my ancestors had to run from those things for a long time. Yep. Um, so we know what those things are. And it's and and they're beautiful people. It's a beautiful culture. Um, it is a wild place. And that is why I like I like going to Southern Africa the most of any place in the world. Um, but I've never I've never experienced a country that I didn't like uh, it, for some reason. There was always something that I enjoyed about it, like the hospitality that I experienced in Uzbekistan or, or the visual beauty of Iceland. All of those places have so much draw. Um, but I would say that probably the experience uh, that I had that I enjoyed the most uh, would have either been crossing Antarctica or crossing Greenland. That was my the, the two overland trips that I did that I, I think changed me the most as an individual and as an overlander. That's amazing, man. And what are your, what are coming, what are some of your like, um, I don't know, what are your life philosophies now? I mean, you, you have a successful business. Um, you're thriving in the space right now. I mean, you have to be, you have to be, ha you know, you're living in your prime right now. And when you look at your life and you look at kind of how you operate in that life, what are some things that you do, um, you know, as, as habits, as behavior, as maybe things that you carry, things that you do, rituals? What, what are things that you do uh, in your life that are philosophies of you that you live? Well, <clears throat> when it comes to business, I would say the easiest thing is to surround yourself with people that are a lot smarter than you. And I've been lucky to do that. Um, the executive team that I have, they are all exceptional people. And uh, my editorial staff is, um, they are all exceptional people, much smarter than me and much more accomplished in those disciplines than I am. So I, I feel very fortunate to have that. And I think that's really the key. If you, if you don't surround yourself with great people, you don't have a chance to grow. Um, so business, and, and I think sticking true to your, to your, your focus as an organization. I mean, I think about Overland Journal and, and Expedition Portal, we've stayed true to that from the beginning, that we wanted to to share our experiences with people around the world. And um, and I think personal stuff, um, it really, for me, has come down over the last few years to understanding myself a little better and being a little more true to myself as well. So that means that I need to come back to the things that give me the greatest joy in life are meaningful relationships with people in my life, with my team, uh, with my family, with my friends, um, and then meaningful experiences. So uh, I used to get super excited about some new gadget to put on my vehicle, and, and now I just see that as a tool to help me have a new experience with somebody that I care about. Um, so I, I think once I figured that out, life got a lot easier. That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm going through that phase one. You're probably in phase three of this op, but I'm... I'm going through that phase one where I'm just not over. I'm not impressed upon anything tangible in my life anymore. It's just, in fact, I like you said, I, I use those tangible elements. Like I want George to get this damn suspension kit so we could put it <laughs> together 
over a couple beers, you know, going yeah. to the shop and put it together and, you know, getting bows and hunting tags. They're all about the experience. And if I could just montage, um, you know, a recap of my life, I just want it to be great experiences with good people around me. And, you know, I, you know, I, I I'm always about the sum of five, you know, you are a, a, a national average or community average of the five people you surround yourself with that are closest to you. Mm. And, you know, leading into 2019, if you are surrounded by people who aren't uh, assets in some form or fashion, they're toxic, you need to do some subtraction and uh, yeah, sure. reevaluating the equation in life. And, you know, leading into 2019, do you have um, any resolutions or anything that you're, you're going to stick to as far as personally, professionally, anything? There's, there's a few big trips that I still want to do. Um, and I haven't decided on which ones are going to be yet. In fact, I'm leaving for Montana tonight to go meet with some friends to talk about a really unusual adventure in North America that hopefully we'll do sometime this year. And, uh, I think that I want, I want the trips that I do to become more difficult. Um, and I want them to be a little more fractal. And what I say by that is not so much crossing big distances, but, but digging deeper into those experiences, being less of a stone kind of skipping across the water and allow myself to get a little bit deeper into some of these cultures. And I think that that's going to be my goal as a traveler. Um, but I think that the places that I visited have taught me so much. I think about kids and families that I've seen in the developing world where these kids are stoked. Every, they are so happy and they're having so much fun. And I see kids in my own town that are not happy and they have everything that they could ever want. And I think that that reminds me of the fact that more is not better. Like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast is that what are the things that actually get me excited as a traveler? And that's the things that I want to go do. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I'm, I'm always inspired. Like, the inspiration that you tie into the magazine, into the portal, like it's, it makes, makes you want to get off your ass and travel. It makes you want to redefine your life and what you want to do as a priority. And it's just exciting, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading about it in Overland Journal and then having you back on the podcast and talking about it because Anytime. it's, I mean, this is, I, I want to travel more and I'm, I'm trying to do a trip to Italy. Um, because I'm fascinated by Italian history and the Mediterranean and everything around it. And I'm just, it, it motivates the hell out of me, man. I want to book tickets right now. Do it. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, lastly, what are, what are a couple of things that you travel with? Uh, you're a minimalist, but there's, there's, you know, staples of survival, staples of travel that you travel with that might be gadgets. What are those things and, and why? Well, there, there's two, th two ways I can answer that question. I think the best way for me to answer it is what is the least that we need to have, mm -hmm. right? And, there, and I do like this idea of what I need is my passport, I need my cell phone, and I need my Amex, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, or Visa card, whatever you yeah. want to put into that, <clears throat> what you really, because people get so tied up in, do I have everything that I need? Well, if you, if you get to Europe, you can, when you go to Italy, if you forget, if none of your bags show up, literally the only thing you show up with is your phone, your passport, and your credit card, you can solve any problem over there. Yep. You can go buy some baller Italian clothes when yeah. you're over there, right? Tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, people can get so nervous about ha making sure they have every last thing with them. Um, but you would, there are things that you have to have. So you have to have a form of identification. You have to have a form of communication. You have to have a form of commerce, right? And as long as I've got those things, I can fix all of the other problems. But beyond that, I do like to carry my camera with me pretty much everywhere. And I, I use What a, is your camera, by it, the way? It's yeah. a Sony a7R 3 It's the newer model of their 
high image quality uh, platform. It's 41 megapixels. And I tend to shoot with prime lenses. I use, uh, Zeiss came out with a, a series of lenses called the Baddest line. And I tend to shoot primes most of the time. Um, I, I do have some zooms as well, but I tend to shoot primes most often. Is there a new camera that's coming out that you're interested in getting? I know there's some, isn't there an A9? The A9's the, yeah, that one's that one's going to be updated soon. They're going to be coming out with a crop sensor camera soon. But I'm just happy with the one body. I usually will, like on in Greenland, I would bring a backup body just just in case something happened. But most of the time, I just travel with the one the one camera and maybe a couple lenses. And usually, because that's all I can fit into a tank bag of an adventure bike. And and that if I can't fit it in the tank bag, it doesn't go with me. That's awesome. Uh, what is um, uh, what are some of the uh, ways that people can get more into overlanding through your portals what are your websites what are your you know talk about your magazine and where people can get it well i i think that uh, there are some good groups on uh, social media platforms to to get involved with expeditionportal.com is our website that i think is a good resource um advwriter.com is a great one for adventure writing enthusiasts um, we have a print magazine, Overland Journal, which is uh, shipped out five times a year. So there's four standard issues and an annual gear guide. Um, and I think that that's a good resource. The Overland Expo is an event uh, that we're involved with, but we don't run it. Um, it's run by Jonathan and Roseanne Hansen. Uh, it's an incredible event. Um, it's a way for you to get a lot of training, a lot of hands-on skills. Um, their training organization is 7P International, and they do a lot of um, like recovery-based training and things like that. Um, you guys at Fieldcraft also do some mobility training as well. I think that starting with some training and experience in the field is key. Surrounding yourself with people that have, that are like-minded um, is a is a key way to get involved with the with the industry. And I think that that's the place to start. Start with physical experiences on the ground, and then surrounding yourself with some information from quality sources. Awesome. Awesome. That's a lot of uh, great information. I can't believe we've been on for an hour and 30 minutes. Um, Scott, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Overland Journal, Expedition Portal. Check it out. Thanks, man, for being on. You're welcome. George, you got anything? I have nothing. I, well, I do have one. Uh, we did our southern border run, and you talked about like the people you were with. And we had about, how many people did we have with us? Seven. About seven people. Yeah. And I tell you what, that it was a, about a four-day trip, and... That was a kind of my first real like overland experience. And I had a blast. Like it was so fun. Like when we'd stop in camp, we'd circle the campsite and it, it was just a great experience with like, just with the, like you said, like you taking the pictures and like be able to look back on that experience, be like, man, that was a great time. Mm -hmm. And I want to do it again and again. So just getting that, like that bug bit me on that trip. So it's like, I go on all these forums and everybody's like, so open and like positive with their information. Like if I have a question about something in my engine or something, like I get an instant response back, which is great. It keeps you motivated. And then when you want to do more, uh, just journeys, adventures, stuff, yeah. stuff like that. So I, it's a great experience, experience right now. So I can't wait to build my rig out, but I'm just, I don't know why I'm procrastinating. We'll do it today. <laughs> we'll force them to do it. Yeah. I, I think for people to remember that our experiences is what define us. Oh yeah. That's a great way to end the podcast. Uh, thanks to Scott for coming out from Overland Journal and Expedition Portal. Also, uh, if you guys are listening to this podcast, uh, this podcast has a few sponsors, George. Uh, we're sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee. Philcraft 20 saves you 20% off on Philcraft. Oh, I'm sorry, on uh, uh, blackriflecoffee.com. But also, 
what are we doing now? We actually have it uh, in stock. We have it in-house. So if you are in the Prescott area, stop on by, and uh, we can fulfill all your coffee needs with our Black Rifle line of coffees. We have at least over, it looks like, 10, 10 kinds of coffees. You can come in and get it right now. So um, Also, uh, this podcast is sponsored by Boss Strongbox. Boss Strongbox makes a whole bunch of drawer system options. They have Pelican. They're a Pelican dealer. Um, anything that you're looking in the storage realm for Boss Strongbox, please check them out. And I always ask you this because I always forget. We have a coupon code for Boss Strongbox on BossStrongbox.com. And the coupon code saves you 25%, which is a big discount. I mean, I mean, 10% is a big deal. 25% is a bigger deal. What's that coupon code? The uh, coupon code is Fieldcraft. Fieldcraft, one no, word. 25% off. Um, also, this uh, podcast is sponsored by Colonel Blades. If you guys are interested in Colonel Blades, we carry that as an EDC tool. Look, uh, Facebook thinks it's a weapon. We think it's a, a practical, everyday carry consideration. Uh, they make a uh, NCO low vis, which we carry in our store on philcraftsurvival.com, but you can go to colonelblades.com to check them out. Hey, awesome podcast, great information. Make sure you go check out expeditionportal.com and sign up, um, and also check out Overland Journal. Uh, I got the gear guide from 2019 sitting in front of me, and this thing is uh, a staple to uh, my coffee table here in the shop. So everybody, uh, thanks for tuning in. This is our first podcast outside of the the New Year podcast of the year, and there's going to be a lot more with Scott from Overland Journal. So yeah, thanks, man. Stay alert. Stay alive.